just a couple remarks about 12 and 13 and 14. 12, 13, and 14 is another cycle. Uh, let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, hold your finger at chapter 12, but go to chapter 14 for just a second. Go to 14, 14. Chapter 14, verse 14. And what most of us assume we're seeing at chapter 14, verse 14, is another depiction of the end, of the end of history, uh, the consummation of the kingdom, uh, the return of Christ. So look at 14.14, just to show you how this cycle ends. Uh, In 14.14, and we'll kind of study this when we get to it, but just to hear it at this point, it's pretty obviously another depiction of the end. Uh, John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man. So this is looking like a return of Christ, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling a loud vo- with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And it continues, but that that pretty much is the second coming of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom, particularly with an emphasis on the judgment. So that's, for most of us, that's obviously another depiction of the end. Uh, go back to when we started studying Revelation. I mentioned that there are several cycles throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, from beginning to end, beginning to end, beginning to end. It's not just the beginning of the picture of history in chapter 1 and the end of history in chapter 22. There are cycles. You're shown the same vision multiple times in different ways. In some ways, perhaps with increasing intensity, but the same vision uh, for the whole Christian era ending with the consummation of the kingdom Uh, One of the reasons we think we see that here in the book of Revelation, repetitive visions of uh, basically the same uh, spiritual teaching, is the book of Daniel does the same thing in the Old Testament. It's a typical way to do apocalyptic literature, uh, to to show the vision in several different ways. So if uh, 14 verses 14 and following is the end of the cycle with the return of Christ, uh, chapter 12, now go back to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1, is, is obviously the beginning of the cycle. And this uh, section in chapter 12 is in some ways even more obvious than some of the other sections that you're at the beginning of Christian history with chapter 12. So what you're going to see in chapter 12 is the first coming of Christ. And what you saw in chapter 14 that I read a few moments ago was the second coming of Christ. So uh, we're on pretty good solid ground that in between is is the Christian era from first coming to second coming. Uh, What the book of Revelation continues to present is the spiritual truths concerning about what the church age looks like from the first coming of Christ until the consummation. Uh, But if you look at chapter 12, and let's start with verse 1, it's pretty obvious what we're looking at here. So John begins this new section, and he says, A great sign 
Uh, a sign, semion in Greek, is like a symbol, but a symbol that strongly points to some reality, a symbol that strongly points to some truth. Uh, John's gospel is based around seven simeons, seven signs. Uh, the, the book of Revelation is doing somewhat the same thing here, or at least using the same term. So anyway, John says he's looking, he's looking into heaven, and he says a great sign appeared in heaven. And then you're going to see this great sign. It's going to involve a woman. It's going to involve a child. It's going to involve a dragon. And most of us assume when you read this, it's pretty clear, um, particularly who the child is, it's pretty clear um, who the dragon is. And it's also fairly clear, maybe composite, it may be more than one person, uh, but it's pretty clear who the woman is. But notice it says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. Uh, and it's going to be a glorious woman. Look how she's described. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. By the way, you can kind of tuck this away in your memory. Uh, here's this glorious woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, crown on her head with 12 stars. This glorious woman um, should be contrasted with the prostitute that you're going to run across, the harlot that you're going to run across in chapter 17. Well, here's this glorious woman, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and a head of and a head and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Before I talk about what that means, verse 2 makes it really clear uh, who this woman is. So, let's read 2 and 3, or at least 2, and then we'll we'll back up a little bit. Verse 2 says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. So, this is a woman who is giving birth. Uh, look at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. We're going to talk about all this. third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. Well, if you look at verse 5, it's obvious who this male child is. Uh, it says a male child is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. One of the most popularly used Psalms from the Old Testament by the early Christians to speak of Jesus was Psalm 2. So perhaps for your homework you can go look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm and it talks about Messiah will come and rule the nations with a rod of iron. So this is a almost direct allusion. That's an oxymoron, but almost a direct allusion to um, Psalm 2. So we know that the child, this male child that this woman gives birth to, is um, Jesus, the one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So that makes it really easy to interpret the dragon that tries to kill Jesus, and it even makes it fairly easy to talk about the woman. Um, let's go back and talk about the woman a minute. Look at verse 1, clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Um, 
I'll just kind of cut to the chase. There's there's three there's three possibilities for this woman, and really I think you can accept all three and make all three into one possibility. Um, if you happen to be of the Roman Catholic persuasion, this is a text that is read on some of the Marian feast days. This is the text that is read when uh, they perhaps like to talk about Mary as Queen of Heaven. Um, when they talk about the ascension or assumption of Mary, this is a text I like to use. So this woman who gives birth to Jesus, at some levels, Mary, and this looks like a really glorified Mary, uh, on her head's a crown of 12 stars. Uh, Mary, Queen of Heaven, 12 stars, uh, perhaps for the 12 apostles. So Mary is certainly, I think, part of the composite picture. I don't think she's the complete composite picture because it's something we're going to see just a little bit later in the text. So uh, it is Mary on one level. Uh, most of us, particularly those of us of the more Protestant persuasion, we, we, we will allow for Mary at this point, but we have to push it beyond Mary at this point. And we will say um, the woman who gives birth to the Messiah um, is, uh, more generally speaking, uh, the, the people of God. Uh, maybe a little more specifically than that, and I will allow for this, or many of us will allow for this, uh, the, 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 the Israelite, the Jewish people, because they do specifically uh, kind of bring Messiah to earth. And that might be why the crown has only um, 12 stars and not 24. You've already seen that frequently 24 is used to be the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. 24, like the 24 elders in heaven, sort of simplifies, simplifies or symbolizes all of the people of God in heaven, both Old Covenant and New Covenant. Here it is only 12, so some people will say it's, it's just Israel giving birth to Messiah. Uh, it may be more generally speaking uh, the people beyond Israel, so that could include us, the people of God. I think it definitely includes us, the people of God, because you're going to see something in a moment. And, and you can throw Mary in the mix. So the woman, um, I believe, is a composite. And we've seen John already do that before, right? Like with the two witnesses, they kind of throws Moses and Elijah together and kind of creates an image. Uh, so I think here you can have Mary, the Jewish people, and, and the Christian people, the people of God. In, in a sense, we all have sort of given birth to Jesus in the world. Well, so you see Jesus being given birth to in the world, and the dragon shows up. And you see what the dragon seeks to do to Jesus. And this is pretty much the gospel story of Jesus. As soon as Jesus shows up, the dragon, uh, notice it says, um, um, so the dragon, uh, he, he, might, he wants to devour this, this child being born at the end of verse 4. Uh, this may be a reference to, um, well, it's the whole gospel story. I mean, the enemy tried to devour Jesus in the temptation and temptations in the wilderness. The enemy tried to devour Jesus at the cross. Uh, obviously, the enemy tried to devour Jesus right after the birth of Jesus when Herod went after all the children there in Bethlehem. So from the time Jesus was born through his crucifixion, uh, the dragon, which is obviously Satan or the serpent. Remember in the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis sort of lies behind this, uh, third chapter of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, um, it's a serpent who, who kind of comes after Adam and Eve. Uh, you're never told in the book of Genesis anything but serpent. 
that comes after Adam and Eve. By the time you let the Jewish tradition work itself out, by the time you let the Christian tradition get started and you get to the book of Revelation, we have defined that serpent from the Garden of Eve, uh, Garden of Eden uh, as, as, as Satan or the devil. So here's the devil trying to destroy the, the male child that the woman gives birth to. So this is pretty much the gospel story. Look at verse 5 again. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And this dragon tries to kill this child. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. Most of us at this point um, see one of the most important events of the life of Christ that is one of the least observed in the Christian community, uh, and that's the ascension of Christ. Uh, you can't just package it if you want to, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, ascension is a, an important part of who we believe Jesus to be. Uh, ascension is when he, after 40 days, he goes back to heaven. You read about it in the book of Acts, primarily. You read about it in the book of Acts. Uh, ascension is a, an important part of our theology. We don't do a lot with ascension because ascension day... 40 days after Easter, occurs on Thursday, and you don't want to come back to church to celebrate it. So we don't do much with Ascension Day in the life of the church. But the Ascension of Christ may be one of the... Uh, you have, that's got to be considered part of the package because it's the Ascension of Christ uh, that, that causes us to proclaim him as exalted Lord. See, it's the right hand of the Father. So you see here this child uh, that's born... Dragon tries to destroy, but he's called up to God and to his throne. So you pretty much have the story, the earthly story of Jesus presented here. Again, you're at the beginning of the cycle that we end in chapter 14. So here in chapter 12, you're at the beginning of Christian history with the coming of Jesus. Um, now notice, though, I said that the woman... Uh, you can throw Mary in the mix, you can throw the Jewish people in the mix, but I think you also have to throw the Christian people in the mix as just the people of God, the woman who kind of brought Messiah to the world because of what we see from this point on. Look at verse 6. Uh, after after uh, the, the male child is called up to heaven, notice what happens verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Well, Mary didn't do that. Uh, according to Christian tradition, John took Mary with him to live in Ephesus in Turkey, major city, after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. But here you see the woman fleeing into the wilderness after her child has been taken to God. Um, this is one of the reasons we say we kind of have to throw the Christian community in the mix because this pretty strongly looks like what happened to the Christian community. Uh, after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Again, think the book of Acts. You know, we tried to hang out in Jerusalem for a while, and that didn't go well for too long. And then we end up having to leave Jerusalem when persecution broke out, and the, you have the first martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, they, there may even be, this may even be, and this is another oxymoron, a direct allusion to uh, the tradition that's written about in various places, not in the Bible, that when the... Um, Romans came to destroy Jerusalem about 40 years after um, the death of Jesus. The Christian community, the small Christian community that was still in Jerusalem, fled to Pella in what would be present-day Jordan. 
some of our early historians wrote that's what we Christians did. We didn't stay and fight for the temple. We didn't need to stay and fight for the temple because we had this Jesus thing going on now. We don't need the temple. So uh, when when Rome laid siege to Jerusalem, uh, most of us Christians uh, hightailed it out of there. And the tradition is we went to the community of Pella on the other side of the Jordan River, which would be fleeing into the wilderness. So this may be a direct allusion to, uh, that's oxymoron, a direct, almost a direct allusion to us fleeing into the wilderness, to fleeing away from um, um, Jerusalem uh, into perhaps Pella. Uh, but notice what it says. Because you, what, it, what it's going to teach you here is that you, us, we, are still living in the wilderness. So look at all of verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So the wilderness here, and this is what feels a little bit like Pella, the wilderness here was a place of refuge for the woman who fled to the wilderness. And she went there in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, well, you already know that number, don't you? We've seen that number several times. 1,260 days, which is the same as 42 months, which is the same as a time and times and half a time, which more, more of your modern translations just translate that three and a half years. This is the period, um, the defined period that goes back to the book of Daniel that is the defined period of the persecution of the Christian community. So when you look at the defined period of the persecution of the Christian community, um, there's a couple ways you can deal with that. You know, some people want it to make it a literal three and a half years. At the end of Christian history, you know, the great, great tribulation, at the end of a whole history of tribulation, um, it's a little dangerous because it's really hard to find, you know, to pick and choose a few things out of the book of Revelation that you want to make take literally because it's obvious you're dealing with a lot of symbols in the book of Revelation. So for most of us, um, and it's pretty clear here, for most of us this uh, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, uh, time, times, and a half a time, three and a half years, uh, could be symbolic of the whole span of Christian history uh, from Jesus' first coming to the second coming. And it paints the picture that our whole span of Christian history has been a period of persecution, which whether you find that in the text or not, that's still reality. I mean, the church, I mean, we have better moments and not so good moments in Christian history. Uh, the history of the church for the last 2,000 years has been written to some degree or another as, with, as persecution. Still going on, it's always been going on. Uh, in the West, in Europe, in the United States, we've had a substantial period of somewhat peace and tranquility for the church, um, but that, that hasn't been even worldwide. So we, we, we know that the history of the Christian community, you know, don't take what you experience in High Point and, and blow that up and make that universal, but the Christian experience has been a, an experience of persecution and tribulation and trial. Um, that's what our history's been. So it looks like this three and a half year period from the birth of Jesus uh, on is a, is a time of persecution. Because um, you also notice, let's, let's keep going. Uh, we're going to go back to the to dragon at this point. Look at verse 7. This is after the ascension, 
after the church goes into the wilderness to be protected. And we keep reading about how the church will be protected. That doesn't mean we don't suffer. That doesn't mean we don't create martyrs. But there's a protection over us. You know, and we certainly, you know, I mean, the worst anybody could ever do to us is just take our physical life, which would just usher us into the full presence of God. So we ultimately and eternally are protected. Uh, so you see the ascension, you see the three and a half, the three and a half um, years here that have appeared to persecution while they're in the wilderness, but being nourished in the wilderness, a place of refuge. At this same time, look at verse seven. Now war arose in heaven. Um, so you're watching conflict now in heaven. Chapter 12 is a picture of cosmic reality. What you're going to see next week in chapter 13, I think, is a picture of political reality that both are painting pictures of the reality of Christian history. Uh, we know that the spiritual warfare that we experience here on the earth um, is is but a reflection of, of of the spiritual conflict that's happening in the heavenlies, that's happening on a spiritual level, that's happening on a cosmic level. So while you see this this persecution happening while the church has fled to the wilderness because the dragon wants to harm us, uh, you, you see on the cosmic level, the spiritual level, a war has arisen in heaven. Uh, in biblical cosmology, you got three heavens. Remember Paul saying he was called up to the third heaven. You've got three heavens in biblical cosmology. You've got the, the atmosphere right around us. You've got the heaven of God. And then you've got whatever atmosphere is right around us and the heaven of God. That's sort of the way the Jews viewed uh, reality. So uh, they, they frequently saw the heaven between what we're breathing and where God is as a realm of spiritual activity. And what you see here is war has arisen in heaven. And you've got spiritual conflict happening. It says, Michael... And you know about Michael, but I'll remind you about Michael. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Um, who's Michael? He's one of the archangels. Uh, you learn about Michael in the book of Daniel, and there's a reference to him in the book of Jude. And there's a lot of references to Michael uh, in, in other apocryph apocalyptic and apocryphal literature beyond the New Testament. But Michael, particularly in the book of Daniel, Michael is the archangel that protects Israel that protects the people of God. So that's why it makes perfect sense. What you see here is the, the archangel that protects Israel or the people of God. And by the way, Paul calls the church the new Israel. I'm assuming you know that. Uh, so what you see here is Daniel, uh, from Daniel, you see still Michael being the protector of the people of Israel, old Israel and new Israel. So, so Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon and the dragon's minions, the dragon's demons. So you see a spiritual conflict going on. So what we have happening on heaven, in heaven is mirrored by what's happening on earth. Uh, so the, the whole Christian age on both levels has always been considered to be a period of conflict, a spiritual conflict. The kingdom of God is advancing. We know that. And that really irritates the enemy of the kingdom of God. So the enemy of the kingdom of God is trying to do everything that the enemy of the kingdom of God can do to prevent the kingdom of God from advancing. So you see this spiritual warfare, and it says, And the dragon and his angels fought back. 
So the dragon has angels, demons. They're fighting back. So you see this cosmic warfare going on. Verse 8, but he was defeated. Uh, the, the enemy was defeated. The Gospels are fairly clear about this. And Paul is too, by the way. Uh, the enemy was defeated at Calvary and the resurrection of Christ. The enemy was defeated through the work of Christ. Uh, I take you back to an analogy I've used frequently. Uh, we are in that period between D-Day and V-E Day, if you think to World War II. Uh, the enemy has been defeated. D-Day's happened. So the, the end is assured, but we've still got the mopping up exercise. We've still got the mopping up activities and the ongoing conflict until we make our way to Berlin. And, and the war does completely end, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So we're between D-Day and VE Day, spiritually speaking. That's, that's the way you write human, that's the way you write human history from a Christian point of view. Uh, but the enemy was defeated at Calvary. So that's probably what you're seeing a reference to here in verse seven and eight. It says he was defeated and he was no longer he was no, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And we know from the New Testament, that because um, you know the book of Job, you see uh, Hosatan, the Satan, uh, in heaven, right? Remember that from the book of Job, Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, you see Satan in heaven, the accuser of God's people. Uh, but when you get to the New Testament, you don't see uh, the devil in heaven anymore. Um, uh, letter of Peter makes it really clear. Um, there's a verse that most Christians know from Peter's writings. The devil prowls about the earth seeking whom he may devour. So as a result of the work of Christ, the devil's defeated. And part of that defeat is he's cast out of heaven, but we have to deal with him here. And that's part, again, the way we view history from a Christian perspective. Uh, conflict of two kingdoms here on this earth. And the devil roams about the earth seeking whom he may devour again to quote Peter um, so he's on the earth he's been cast down that's part of the victory of Christ uh, so he's uh, verse 9 and the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent in case you're not picking it up here John and the visions helping you he's tying it back to Genesis 3 and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. I mean, I don't think you can miss out on who the dragon is. He's giving you about every title he can throw at you uh, for the dragon. He was thrown down to the earth, and I assume you know that if you pay attention to the news and the media and see what's going on on planet earth. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So again, this is a picture of human history from a Christian point of view. Look at verse 10. And again, I think this whole section right here uh, is, is, is what happened cosmically when Christ did what Christ did through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And that's why if you look at verse 10, uh, there's going to be a hymn that breaks loose now that the dragon has been cast out of heaven. Uh, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. The word hosatan just means adversary or accuser. Uh, the accuser of our brothers or sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. He's talking about us, the church. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. So how do you conquer the enemy? 
pleading the blood of Christ, being sheltered and shielded by the blood of Christ, the work of Christ, the life of Christ, and by your testimony about your relationship to Christ. Uh, that's, that's, that's how you defeat the enemy. But notice, even though you defeat the enemy that way, it says um, that we don't love our lives even unto death. In other words, we, we, will, we give our lives and if necessary we die for the sake of Christ. Uh, the book of Revelation very much is written to a persecuted, suffering church. And, you know, that may not apply a lot right now in High Point. It certainly applies in places like China. It certainly applies in places like Africa. I uh, saw, saw a news report yesterday about a pastor that was beheaded uh, by the group in Nigeria. Um, I mean, in other places around the world, they, this relate, they can relate to this. They feel the wrath of the dragon in other places. I think the dragon is a little more subtle here in the United States in the ways the dragon um, tries to attack the people of God in the United States. Uh, But it says that the people of God defeat the dragon by the blood of Christ and their testimony in Christ, even if it means they they love not their lives even unto death. They're willing to give the ultimate sacrifice. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, And here you're going to be told why he's so agitated, because he knows that his time is short. Now, again, you can put this at the end of the end, but throughout Christian history, we've been more than willing to put this throughout the whole Christian dispensation. Uh, The whole Christian dispensation has been written by the church struggling against the powers of darkness in this world. Um, You've heard me say probably before that one of these days, if I think about it in a worship service or maybe the week before I retire and I get you to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you know, when you get to that verse that says, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. You know, I often want to stop my middle-class white American Methodist when they're singing about though this world with devils filled, I want to stop them and say, do you really believe that? Um, That's how the enemy can be subtle here in the United States. Uh, We just sort of don't ever think about the enemy coming at us, so that will get you defeated real quickly, but the enemy is very subtle here. In other parts of the world and other points in history, the enemy has not been that subtle against the church. But I think particularly here in the West, the enemy is very subtle against the church. And um, but we yeah we sing Martin Luther's hymn, but I'm not sure we 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 we, we I don't I'm not sure we understand we live that reality. We live that reality, which almost assures our defeat. If we live that reality, but we don't understand that we're living that reality. You know, if you if you if you if you're in war, you might as well be in battle. You know, a sure way of defeat is to be in war and never enter the battle. Um, we're in the midst of a spiritual conflict, spiritual conflict between good and evil, and that's the way we have written Christian history. Uh, that's, that's been a general consensus of the Christian movement. Um, and you see why the enemy, the enemy is, is between D-Day and V-E Day. The enemy knows V-E Day is coming, so he knows his time is short. So he's going to try to take as many hostages as possible uh, in what time he has. That's the way we write history. Look at verse 13 from a Christian perspective. Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, 
who had given birth to the male child. And again, this is another place where this woman is not just Mary, not just the Jewish or the Israelite community, but it's us too. Because I, I hope you understand what it means to be Christian and being pursued by the dragon. Uh, so we're, you know, we're in the wilderness where we're being nourished, place of refuge, place of refuge. You know, we can sing things like "It is well with my soul," but as we sing "It is well with my soul," the enemy is still pursuing us. Um, that's what you see in verse 13. The woman, the woman, the people who gave birth to the male child, are being pursued by the dragon. Look at verse 14. But when the woman, us was given, but then the woman, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent to the wilderness. We're going back to what we've already said. We can, we can fly from the serpent to the wilderness to the place where, where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. You know, time is one, times is two. That's three and a half, three and a half years. That goes back to the book of Daniel. Um, this reference to being carried on eagles' wings to a place of safety uh, and the acknowledged presence of God. Uh, most of you, and this is valid, most of you would connect that to the last verses of Isaiah 40. You know, they who um, wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. But probably the more direct allusion, again, not more of it, probably the more direct allusion is Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, where um, we're told that when the Israelites were fleeing Egypt and they made their way to Mount Sinai to receive the law through Moses, they were born there on eagles' wings. So literally when the children of Israel uh, had to flee Egypt and flee into the wilderness, uh, the book of Exodus says they were born there on eagles' wings. So even though we are in the midst of conflict, we're in a wilderness, it, it is a place of nourishment, it is a place of refreshment for us, and I think you, you get that. That you know we can sing it is well with my soul, but at the same time, uh, there's spiritual conflict that we participate in daily. So um, for this period of persecution, three and a half years, 1,260 days, uh, 42 months, this period of persecution is is we are protected, but we're not freed from persecution. Verse 15, and this is another great verse. And again, it goes back to the book of Numbers, which you probably didn't stay up late last night reading. But there's some wonderful stuff in the Hebrew Bible. Verse 15, the serpent poured water. Because the serpent's trying to devour the woman. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Uh, so the serpent is um, pouring forth a flood. Um, if you don't understand the serpent's flood, you're not paying attention to the culture around you. The serpent is pouring forth a flood of evils, of destruction, of whatever. But notice what happens. The serpent is pouring water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with his flood. You can put in brackets of evil. But look at verse 16. This is why it goes back to the book of Numbers. But the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opens, opened its mouth. Remember, we're dealing with spiritual reality here. The earth has a mouth in the book of Revelation. Uh, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed that river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. So um, the, the dragon, the serpent, devil, Satan, is trying to destroy the woman by pouring forth a flood of evil. 
the woman is somehow protected in the midst of this. Then you have this beautiful image of the earth opening up and swallowing the flood that um, um, the, the serpent is, is, is trying to use to drown the woman. Uh, now, most people look at this, and I've, I've heard some preachers wax eloquent, and this is true. I don't think, well, this is true. They'll wax eloquent at this point and talk about how creation comes to the aid of the Christian community. Well, that's true. I mean, God can use whatever God wants to use to come to our aid. Creation can come to our aid, and the mouth of the earth can open up and help us out a little bit. But uh, when I've heard a preacher do that, I'm thinking, yeah, you need to read the book of Numbers too. In the book of Numbers, there's this fascinating story about Korah and his followers who tried to rebel against Moses. They started out grumbling against Moses. They started out grumbling against the spiritual leadership of Moses. And then they just kind of decided to be all-out rebellion against Moses. And there in, in the book of Numbers, you can go look at it in chapter 16 of the book of Numbers, more homework. There in the book of Numbers, you've got Korah and his followers grumbling against Mo- Moses and then finally breaking out and rebelling against Moses. Guess what happens to Korah's followers in Numbers chapter 16? earth opens up and swallows them. So here again is a kind of a direct allusion to the story that we have in number 16 because uh, that's what you see that happens to the people who are coming after Moses. And where's Moses at when that happens? The wilderness. So uh, I, I know why the vision John receives here is, is a very Jewish vision in a lot of ways. Uh, we need to know our Old Testament. Verse 17, getting to the end. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. Yeah, the more the dragon tries to defeat us, the more the dragon can't defeat us, the the more the dragon gets irritated at us. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. I think at this point, the text talking about you. You know, you're not the direct offspring of the the women because we're 2,000 years kind of down the road at this point. But the dragon is so furious with the woman, the people of God, people who brought Messiah to the world, that the, the, the dragon just becomes more and more furious with the woman. So he just goes and off to try to find some more of her offspring, wherever she can find her, wherever he can find her offspring. So we're part of the offspring of this woman, part of the offspring of this community that gave birth to the Messiah. On those who keep the commandments of God, this is the community, uh, the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Um, In a lot of ways, I think chapter 12 is an easy uh, vision to interpret. And there's a lot of consensus, by the way, over the last 2,000 years as to what we're seeing here in chapter 12. So in a lot of ways, it's a pretty easy vision to interpret. Notice how chapter 12 ends. Um, or it may not end in your Bible this way, depending on your uh, translation. Uh, the way my translation ends at the end of the last verse of chapter 12 is, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Um, King James, using not the oldest manuscripts, they used some of the best manuscripts they had at that point, uh, actually translated that verse, and I stood on the sand of the sea. And as a matter of fact, what King James did is uh, they took the end, I stood on the sand of the sea, and they actually make it the beginning of verse thir- uh, beginning of verse 1, chapter 13. 
but now that we have uh, a better manuscripts, older manuscripts of the New Testament, is pretty clear is he. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Dragon. Should be the dragon. And I like that. We lose something theologically if you make it John. Um, I like I like seeing the dragon standing on the sands of the sea, pouting. Yep. Yeah, they're all, yeah, the whole army. Yeah, you got the whole army. And you probably feel like you're against a whole army sometimes. Yeah, you got the whole army. So here, they're try, he's trying hard as he can with all the forces at his might to destroy the woman. And the text just ends with him standing on the sand of the sea. I just imagine him pouting. I imagine him angry. No telling why he's doing to us or pointing at us or... But it's just, you see a frustrated dragon standing on the sand of the sea at this point. So then in verse 13, you, you kind of get another vision that shows you another perspective on this reality. Like I said, chapter 12 sort of the cosmic spiritual reality of history. Chapter 13, you're going to see the political reality because it is in chapter 13. You've been waiting for months for this. It is in chapter 13 when the beast shows up. There's actually two beasts that will show up in chapter 13. There's a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. And if you add these two beasts to the dragon, guess what you've got? You've got the unholy trinity. 